in fact, the fourth Karl Popper Memorial Lecture. Karl Popper, just in case there's uh, anybody here who doesn't know who Karl Popper was, he was professor, reader, and then professor of logic and scientific method at the LSE from 1946 until his retirement in 1969. And uh, he, I think, left his mark indelibly not only on the school but on his subject. I think he, after his death it was agreed that we should have a, a lecture to commemorate his life and work here. I should also introduce, having introduced Sir Carl to you, I should introduce myself, I'm told. My name is David Miller. I was a student and assistant to Carl Popper in the 1960s and worked with him on and off, but quite a lot, uh, all the way until his death in 1994. So I have some feel and sympathy and enthusiasm for his work. In fact, it was in this room that I first saw uh, Sir Carl. He wasn't Sir Carl then. Uh, the first int uh, introduction to scientific method lecture that I attended. I have a memory of this room as being huge. I mean, and I was, that it was all I could see right down at the bottom here was this rather small man. But I can see now that I've grown up and it's, it's uh, a more, more manageable size of room. So the, the, the main introduction I have to make is our speaker this evening, Pro, uh, Professor Michael Baum. Professor Baum uh, is Pro Professor Emeritus of Surgery and now uh, Professor of Medical Humanities at University College London. He is a distinguished cancer surgeon and he has many other interests and indeed uh, more than just interested in the science of his subject, but in its application and uh, every aspect of uh, a doctor's uh, uh, treatment of his patients. He's un not unknown to controversy, uh, Professor Baum, uh, and he will no doubt create some more contra controversy this evening. Uh, I think I don't need to say more. <coughs> because his title indicates that he's not going to just tell us a few platitudes that we uh, already know about. Popperian pathways, the demarcation between quack cancer cures and scientific remedies. I should say that we have about one hour for this lecture, I'm afraid, given the, given the uh, cons time constraints in the LSE these days. Professor Baum will speak for about 40 minutes and then while you're thinking of the questions that you want to ask him, please try to make them really pithy. No long commentaries followed by questions, just a pithy question. Professor Baum. Thank you for that kind introduction. Uh, to give an eponymous lecture is the ultimate accolade uh, for academics. Uh, to give the memorial lecture for Karl Popper is something very special for me, as will become clear. Uh, it's a, a super-duper honor, but I'll explain why in a minute. Um, my daytime job is as a professor of surgery, and I specialize in breast cancer, but I dabble. I'm a dilettante, and I have two areas where I dabble. Um, one is the philosophy of science and the other is fine art. And I want to open this lecture by showing how I've combined the two loves of my life outside my subject in one painting. This is a painting by Raphael and it's uh, in the Vatican from that magnificent fresco, the School of Athens. And an, an art historian friend of mine pointed out that this is probably Plato and this is probably Aristotle. And the way Raphael has posed them is significant in that Plato points heavenwards, indicating uh, wisdom is revealed, whereas Aristotle is a much more earthy guy and he says, no, we seek evidence for expanding our knowledge. Um, in my uh, interest, in whose who you will find amongst my interests listed 
um, including uh, rugby, football, wines, and so on. Um, philosophy of science and fine art. Well, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, out of the blue, I had a phone call from Karl Popper saying a dear friend of mine has developed breast cancer and I was looking for a surgeon and I came across your name and I saw you're interested in the philosophy of science, so I've chosen you. <laughs> My dear friends, that is not the way to choose a surgeon. <laughs> trust me on this. Never trust a surgeon who expresses an interest in the philosophy of science. Anyway, this started a friendship and um, we corresponded a lot and I met him a few times and um, just so there's no doubt, that's Karl Popper <laughs> and the other one's me. And I'm not much of a giant, uh, but Karl Popper was much smaller than me and to me he was the smallest giant I've ever met. To me he was the giant of the philosophy of science in the 20th century. And my enthusiasm for his work really was inspired by one of my brothers, uh, Harold Baum, who was Dean of Life Science at King's College. And he introduced me to the writings and thinkings of uh, Popper. Um, in 1993, I went for tea. And Carl was in a very excitable state. He was literally bobbing up and down like that. And he said, look what I've got, look what I've got. And he opened a box of books. And this was the Russian translation of the open society and its enemies. And he said that I should live to see this day. And it was thrilling to be with him on that occasion. He gave me uh, an English version, which, which he signed. Now, when I was preparing this lecture, I went back and I found my file of correspondence uh, with Karl Popper. And this actually is the last letter that he wrote to me. I just want to highlight uh, two sections. Um, uh, like your Australian paper, uh, I believe that homeopathy, homeopathy rationalists. So I've had this running with the homeopathic doctors uh, for a very, very long time. And the fact that Karl Popper agreed with me was an enormous comfort. And then I want you to notice this uh, last bit I've highlighted. For me, the most interesting of your papers was limitation of non-science in surgical epistemology. I can't believe that I wrote such titles. I mean, I must have been a pompous ass and I wasn't uh, in, in those days, but I think I knew what he was getting at. So I thought I would weave these two themes together. Um, the... Uh, my problems with alternative or quack medicine and uh, my problems with the uh, epistemology of my subject, which is carcinoma of the breast. Um, I'm terrified to be speaking in front of professional philosophers and scientific philosophers, but I do have this idea that uh, what most uh, alternative medical practices have in common is a reliance on a very primitive type of inductive logic uh, where they simply continue to seek corroborative evidence to prove a law of nature. And just to uh, illustrate a few examples, uh, comical to begin with, here is David Beckham advertising a herbal remedy, Herbalife, to improve performance. And Herbalife promote the idea that all these famous athletes um, who use Herbalife have fantastic performance. Um, and it, it occurs to me, if that is true, and Herbalife truly enhances athletic performance, then it should be classified like anabolic steroids. You can't have it both ways. But of course they want it both ways. And they simply rely on these assertions, these anecdotal uh, comments. Another delightful, entirely harmless one that uh, is promoted by our local alternative health clinic is the tectonic plate amulet to neutralize electromagnetic waves. And this rather lovely lady wears it and it works all the time. She remains well and healthy because she has neutralized her electromagnetic waves. Occasionally, uh, Women wearing these things do develop breast cancer, but then they discover that the, the, uh, the, the plate was cracked 
or had run out, uh, and so it's rationalised the way uh, why it ceases to work. But it's not a joke. It's not a joke. Homeopathy, uh, which uh, the more dilute the evidence, the greater the popularity, is now so self-confident about what it has on offer that the Society of Homeopaths this December is celebrating World AIDS Day by an HIV AIDS symposium in order to promote homeopathic remedies for the prevention and treatment of HIV AIDS. This to me is criminally insane and I don't know how they're allowed to get away with it. But I want to talk about cancer. How does this translate into treating cancer with alternative versus orthodox uh, regimens? Well, there is this constant story you hear. The patient was given six months to live but defied the doctor's predictions, took snake oil or whatever it may be and lived to a ripe old age. You hear this again and again and again. Now, how do they get away with it? They get away with it because this is an urban myth. There is no such patient. No doctor tells a patient with cancer they have six months to live. If pressed, and if we're dealing with patients with advanced cancer, we might say that the median survival for this group of diseases is six months the median survival. Some may die sooner, but often the distribution curve is, uh, is not a normal distribution, but um, there's a very long tail to the right of the distribution curve. Many patients may live a long time in spite of this dire prognosis. And it's on these anecdotes that the promoters of alternative medicine build their evidence to support uh, what I call quack cancer cures. In fact, as always, a little cartoon sums it up better than I can sum it up. This was from the New York Times. I don't know why you wanted a second opinion. Your doctor's guess is as good as mine. And certainly, if you're dealing with patients with advanced cancer, we can't predict precisely how long they were going to live and many patients certainly live uh, uh, on the extreme right hand of an abnormal distribution curve. And some patients without any treatment at all can live a long time, as I will demonstrate to you. Um, I now want to take you into my subject. And using this type of critical appraisal, talk about the history of the treatment of breast cancer. Hmm. I want to introduce you to the history of breast cancer by reminding you it is not a new disease. It has always been there and it has always terrified women. Women with a lump in the breast are terrified that A, they may die prematurely, or B, they may be mutilated by radical surgery. This is the miracle of San Carlo Borromeo, painted in 1660, and it's meant to represent the miraculous healing of a woman with breast cancer. He was the patron saint of the Duomo in Milan, and that's meant to be the breast cancer. Look at the expression on her face. Now, there's another painting, a hundred years later, Jean-Baptiste Tiepolo, and by chance I saw the original in Berlin in the uh, picture gallery last week. And this is the martyrdom of St. Agatha. St. Agatha was martyred by having bilateral amputations of her breast. The same expression, stereotype expression of despair, looking to heaven for guidance. And look at the attendant on her right, and on that plate, you'll see the two breasts that have been amputated. In, at the time of the ancient Egyptians, breast cancer was described for the first time. One of my students thought this described a woman who'd had a mastectomy, but in fact, she didn't have a mastectomy, and I'll tell you why in a minute. That is a pure profile, and if you go to the temples of Karnak, all the women are shown in profile in that way. 
The reason we know she didn't have a mastectomy was because of the famous Edwin Smith medical papyrus, which is, um, which is in the, um, sorry, um, the museum in uh, uh, Chicago. And I've just highlighted this uh, section of this papyrus. I, it would not surprise me, an audience like this, someone can actually read, read this. Um, but for those who can't read it, um, the ancient Egyptian physician says, there are two bulging tumors of the breast. There is the hot bulging tumor, the cold bulging tumor. If it is hot, you cut it, breast abscess. If it is cold, you don't cut it, because it gets worse. And that is accepted as the first description of a breast cancer. And the ancient Egyptian recommended not to operate. And there may have been some wisdom in that recommendation. The time of the ancient Greeks, uh, uh, Hippocrates himself argued against surgical intervention. And what was left for these women was uh, prayer to the gods. And here's a votive offering from one of the Esculapia that is meant to represent a breast cancer, although it doesn't look like a breast cancer to me. So these women put themselves in the hands of the gods. And to this day, women continue to put themselves, uh, offer themselves up to the gods. And this is an extraordinary experience I had in Naples. A couple of years ago, Naples, Neapolis, was originally founded by the Greeks uh, moving across uh, to Italy. And to this day, several layers above the uh, original Esculapium, you will find a modern church, and in the side chapel, you will see these votive offerings. So to this day, women will offer their prayers and a votive offering for healing. Now, we can laugh at this and uh, be skeptical, but this illustrates the importance of understanding what is going through a woman's head. If nothing else, women do need spiritual support, psychological support, when faced with the threat of breast cancer. Throughout the Dark Ages, from 200 to about the middle of the 19th century, the management of breast cancer was very much under the influence of Galen. And Galen taught that breast cancer was due to a coagulation of black bile within the breast. Black bile was one of these metaphysical natural humors, and the Latin for black bile is melancholia, hence the expression depression. And they were treated in such a way to get rid of the black bile. So the therapeutic consequence of this belief led to some pretty awful things. And the physician at the time would recommend purgation, bleeding, leeches, and strange diets, all of which were disgusting. And here is an an illustration of a leech woman. Uh, And here's the bowl of leeches. This is a painting by Jan Stein. And this is the leech woman sucking out the black bile from the arm of a poor patient. And it was interesting how persistent this belief was from 200 to about the middle of the 19th century. If the patient got better, it was because of the treatment. But if in spite of all this treatment, the patient died, it wasn't that the treatment was wrong, it was that the patient's constitution was wrong, or the doctor didn't have the courage of his convictions to carry out sufficient bloodletting. Very much like the Soviets used to explain away the failure of the five-year plan. There was nothing wrong with the five-year plan. It was the saboteurs who undermined the success of the five-year plan. And this was the mode of thinking throughout this dark period. Surgery was occasionally undertaken. And here we see a 17th century engraving of an amputation of the breast a uh, ghastly procedure, and most of these women died of uh, hemorrhage or sepsis with no anesthesia. Uh, you may think that this is just an artist's depiction of what uh, cancer can look like. It is not. I did have a slide showing a contemporary patient with this, but I decided as this was a lay audience, I wouldn't show it because it is rather disgusting. But one thing to remember If nothing else, uncontrolled local breast cancer can progress to something that is fungating, bleeding, and smelly. 
The next conceptual revolution or therapeutic revolution about breast cancer goes back to uh, Vyakov in the 1840s. And here is a, a page from his treatise on the morbid anatomy of breast cancer, which shows, uh, we call it cancer en cuirasse. If neglected, the cancer can spread all around the trunk, uh, like uh, the cuirass of a suit of armor. And the skin is reflected to show columns of cancer cells spreading up along the lymphatic channels to the axilla. And Virchow taught that the lymph nodes filtered out the cancer and that the disease spread centrifugally towards the lymph nodes. This was then translated into an hypothesis about the nature of breast cancer, which was endorsed by the greatest surgeon of the latter part of the 19th century, William S. Halstead, at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. And he argued that if Virchow was right, then to cure patients, you needed to cut more away. The greater the extent of the surgery, the better the chance of cure and that the surgery needed to encompass the regional lymph nodes to get rid of the nidus of tertiary spread. So that was a well-defined hypothesis about the nature of breast cancer. The therapeutic consequence of that belief system was the Halstead radical mastectomy. Here is such an operation being undertaken at the Agno Clinic in 1906-1905, a lovely painting by Thomas Eakins of Philadelphia. And what I love about this particular painting is it must have been the golden era of to be a surgeon. The surgeon stands back to take the applause, the assistant closes the wound. We don't have assistants anymore, they're on study leave, uh, compassionate leave, uh, they were on last night so they're not on today. So we close up our own wounds and no one applauds us anymore. It's rather sad. But this is the operation and this is what I was taught to do and I was very good at it. I prided myself how immaculately I did the radical mastectomy and I never needed blood transfusion because I stopped all the bleeding. So the breast and the muscles and the lymph nodes were removed on block and that was the appearance after the operation. And I don't want to linger on that. So this was the received wisdom when I qualified, and in fact when I became a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1965, no one questioned. We'd arrived at the ultimate truth of the treatment of breast cancer, and that was the radical mastectomy. Now I'd like to come back to a little bit of scientific philosophy. The evidence to support radical mastectomy for the treatment of breast cancer, in my mind, was purely uh, simple inductivism. And here's an example which emphasizes the point. This old woman came under my care when I was professor of surgery at King's College. She had a head injury, but my registrar, we had registrars in those days, uh, noticed that she'd had a radical mastectomy and she'd had it 30 years earlier. So here was a cure from a radical mastectomy. What he failed to notice was the indraw nibble and the fact that the left breast was replaced by breast cancer. And when I asked her how long had she had that lump, oh, she said 29 years. I didn't like the first treatment, so I thought I, I wouldn't have it again. So here we have an anecdotal case that suggests at the same time this woman has been cured by radical mastectomy or has been cured by doing nothing at all. And then you look back at the records and you find there never was any scientific evidence that radical mastectomy would cure breast cancer. In fact, my, part of my thesis all those years ago was on the curability of breast cancer and concluded that we couldn't define a cure in those days. This is where Popper's Pathways come in. I was one of a group uh, in the 1970s, early 1970s, who said, you know, enough of this. Let's start doing evidence-based, what we call evidence-based medicine. Let's do randomized trials. Let's set up our hypotheses and our experiments. 
So we took very much Popperian teaching that you construct a thesis with various observations and then you set up experiments of falsification by comparing it with an alternative hypothesis. But the very method of falsification leads to biological fallout which allows us to revise the original thesis and then do the next set of randomized trials ad infinitum, always approximating but never arriving at the truth. Karl Popper's uh, autobiography was never-ending quest, and I think that's what he was getting at. Well, the randomized controlled trial, to my way of thinking, is a Popperian pathway applied to clinical medicine. You generate a hypothesis from clinical observations and animal work, and this suggests the therapy. So this is the therapeutic consequence of that biological hypothesis. But someone equally clever can generate an alternative hypothesis that also explains the observation and the animal work, which has a different therapeutic consequence. So in comparing treatment A with in treat and treatment B in a randomized controlled trial, you really are attempting to falsify your favored hypothesis and in so doing, we have a new clinical insights which can lead on to the next generation of clinical trials. First of all, we have to have an understanding of the inconsistencies in the anatomical model I've just described. Impossible to define a cure. However perfectly the cancer was removed, and the pathologist would say, well done, Professor, you have got seven centimeters clearance in all directions. Many years later, it would come back. How, how is that possible? We would get patients with lymph node metastases with no primary detectable. And then there was Professor Bernard Fisher of Pittsburgh, who in the late 60s did a whole series of animal experiments which completely overturned the idea that cancer spread along lymphatics as the primary mode of spread. He demonstrated that the primary mode of spread was via the vascular system, that cancer cells could get into the system bypassing the lymphatics very early on in the evolution of the disease. This is Dr. Fisher sitting on the shoulders of his father. I had the honor of working with Bernie Fisher in Pittsburgh in the early 70s. And I like to think if anyone can see further than Bernie, it's because we're sitting on his shoulders. Now, he encapsulated the alternative hypothesis in a very beautiful way. He said, by the time you can diagnose a breast cancer, it's escaped. It's already out there in the system. And so he said that radical surgery is like slamming the stable door after the horse had bolted. Just turned everything on its head. Now, the therapeutic consequences of that are profound. If that is the case, then radical surgery isn't going to cure anybody. We might as well preserve the breast and at least offer control of the disease. So the first set of randomized trials were the breast-conserving trials. And comparing the anatomical model of radical mastectomy versus what I call the biological model of lumpectomy and radiotherapy. And we now know with absolute confidence that for a small tumor, an outcome like that provides the same chances of cure as an outcome like that. That's Dr. Fisher. He's still alive and kicking in his late 80s. And that's one of the randomized trials comparing lumpectomy with mastectomy at 20-year follow-up. The overall survival is identical. The next therapeutic consequence of this belief is adjuvant systemic therapy. If the disease is indeed systemic, then we have to treat the patient systemically. And so immediately, uh, people thinking the same way set up doing randomized trials of adjuvant systemic therapy. Anatomical model, just surgery, biological model, uh, surgery plus systemic therapy. My group embarked on trials of tamoxifen and Bernie Fisher's group embarked on trials of chemotherapy and we were both right. 
Something um, remarkable happened in 1985. All the trials from around the world were brought together, all the different trials of adjuvant chemotherapy, adjuvant tamoxifen, for a meta-analysis which showed beyond any shadow of doubt that the addition of systemic therapy improved long-term survival. And something that has never been seen before in the history of oncology, a sudden break in population mortality. There was a significant steady increase in the mortality of breast cancer up until the mid-80s, almost entirely due to demographic changes. And unchecked, that would have gone up like that. But from 1985, it plunges down and continues downwards. There, on this slide, there's a, a 30% relative fall. And then if you consider just one of the new trials, it, replacing tamoxifen with an aromatase inhibitor, here is the early tamoxifen trials, control uh, tamoxifen, uh, five-year survival. And then the latest trial, comparing uh, tamoxifen yellow and arimidex, uh, an aromatase inhibitor, we're up to over a 90% uh, five-year survival. And that continues out to 10 years, that improvement. So these are huge advances, thanks entirely to a conceptual revolution, uh, which I like to think Karl Popper played a part. Now, the next, uh, the remaining part of my lecture, I want to challenge the conventional model that we live with today. Um, I try to explain conceptual revolutions to medical students and I find it helps to show Salvador Dali's painting. So here we have a painting, there you see two nuns walking under an arch. The same visual data can be translated and, de translated and decoded to another meaning. Also there is the bust of Voltaire, two eyes, a nose, a chin, that's the bust of Voltaire the high forehead. I think Dali was being rather clever there because um, uh, Voltaire was very anti-clerical. So if you like, you've got the sacred and the profane interpretation. So that is a visual example of conceptual revolutions or if you forgive the expression, paradigm shifts. So I ask, is it time for another paradigm shift? It becomes time for a conceptual revolution when there are too many inconsistencies uh, that cannot be explained by the contemporary model which has been pretty successful but some of these inconsistencies are anecdotal which I'll mention the issue of metastases at the time of diagnosis and the complex issue of hazard rates over time for metastases. I just want to mention one anecdote and uh, my sister-in-law, Shirley, will be amazed to, that I acknowledge her here because this book, Diseases of the Breast, she bought for me a long time ago in a junk sale. And I came across the most wonderful anecdote in this about a recorded case in which a woman had a small painless tumour in her left breast for 22 years. Three months after an operation for removal of the, of the ovary, the original lump grew rapidly and was diagnosed eventually as a breast cancer. So here we had a woman living quietly with her breast cancer. Another, she has a different operation, whoop, it takes off. I have collected such anecdotes all around the world. I have the similar cases myself. Whenever I give this kind of lecture, someone in the audience says, funny you should say that, I've had the same kind of case. There's just so many anecdotes out there, you can't ignore them. And here's another phenomenon. These red lumps, represent tumours of different stage of presentation, T1, T2, T3. What is odd, however big the primary tumour, distant metastases are incredibly rare. It's so much so we've stopped screening for distant metastases. Yet, within two years after operation, these are the percent dying. So at presentation, distant metastases are rare, yet the chance of dying of a distant metastasis within two years is dependent on the stage at presentation. This becomes even more remarkable when you look at hazard rates for relapse. A hazard rate is simply the risk of a relapse amongst women who were relapse-free at, at the beginning of the period of observation. If there was a linear mathematics in this, these hazard rates would be 
the same over time. And I, it would take me too long to explain why. But they're not. You get the extraordinary biphasic hazard for relapse, depending on the size of the tumour. The timing of this signal is identical, but the amplitude of the signal depends on the gravity of the tumour at the point of diagnosis. Now, I'll show you a couple of real-life examples. I've been working with my colleagues at uh, the Milan Cancer Institute, and here is a large number of patients uh, published in the New England Journal, 1995, who've just had surgery, and this is what we call a Kaplan-Meier plot, and that's what it looks like. If you translate that into a hazard rate plot, this is what you see. An initial peak at about two years comes down and then a second, longer, flatter peak. How on earth can you explain that? Every group of studies that you look at will show the twin peak of hazard. The initial peak at about two years, then a longer, flatter peak over five years. The amplitude of the peak depends on the gravity of the tumour at the time of diagnosis. Well, to explain this, you have to uh, think about some of the new developments in molecular biology, which I don't want to go into. But one thing that I think is key to the understanding of this extraordinary phenomena is that these cancer cells out there in the body live in a soup of cytokines. And some of these cytokines can stimulate angiogenesis. That's the growth of blood vessels. The key seminal piece of work to understand this was published in, by Judah Volkman's group in Nature Oncology uh, about uh, 10 years ago. And this is um, a picture of an experimental um, mouse lung metastasis. And that's the vasculature. And these are the proliferating cells uh, shown in a different color. Well, I've taken Judah Folkman's model and I've animated it so that I think I can explain what's going on. A, imagine a cluster of breast cancer cells somewhere in the body. They will grow up until uh, a volume of about three millimeters cubed about 10 to the 8 cells. Beyond that, they can't grow unless they induce their own vasculature like that. And then they will grow a bit more until you reach a stage of dynamic equilibrium. I do not believe these metastases, or for that matter the primary, are growing according to linear dynamics. I think they reach a state of dynamic equilibrium, and this dynamic equilibrium is dependent on uh, cytokines driving angiogenesis for epithelial proliferation or apoptosis, all pulling in different ways. And here's just a diagrammatic idea of what might be happening. These are the various cytokines and hormones that will stimulate or inhibit epithelial proliferation, apoptosis, or angiogenesis. Then the surgeon comes along and cuts the patient. The most extraordinary thing that Judah Volkman described, that the most powerful inhibitor of angiogenesis is angiostatin produced from the primary tumour. It's almost as if the primary tumour wishes to keep the host alive. It's a very scary thought. But other things happen in response to wounding. A whole cascade of events happen following the uh, molecular consequences of wounding. And I don't have time for an audience like this, but take it on trust. As a result of wounding, the cascade of uh, events that happen encourage angiogenesis, encourage epithelial proliferation, and inhibit apoptosis. In other words, I think it is possible that wounding, whether by chance or by intention, can provoke the outgrowth of latent or dormant metastases. My explanation for this twin peak is that the initial peak is the induced cell division, the induced epithelial proliferation, and the induced angiogenesis as a result of surgical wounding and the healing that's necessary. And I'm a surgeon, so you might have to begin to believe me. And I think the second peak 
is as a result of the steady stochastic transitions or the natural history of untreated breast cancer. Now, I've already shown you one example of a woman who coexisted with a breast cancer for 29 years. If this is true, then maybe there are many women, if left untreated, could coexist with their breast cancers. Here's an example. This woman, who I looked after in Cardiff, refused surgery, and I just inherited her. She'd been coming to the clinic for 30 years. She was 90 by this time. And she allowed us to watch the steady growth of bilateral breast cancer, not touched, and she coexisted. Now, we have no idea how many breast cancers would behave like this if left to themselves. I would like to put that all together in one conceptual model, which I've entitled, Does Breast Cancer Exist in a State of Chaos? And we published this paper in European Journal of Cancer 1999. Mark Chaplin is a chaos mathematician working in Dundee. And we suggested that you start off with duct carcinoma in situ, which is a latent pathology, uh, which is a necessary but not sufficient condition to proceed to invasive cancer. And it is possible that left alone, many of these would regress spontaneously. Some might progress uh, for stochastic reasons, and some may even be triggered to progress by the act of biopsy. Once they progress to an angiogenic form, then they develop a malignant potential. This animation isn't just an animation. Mark Chaplin uh, produced this on his computer screen by feeding in a number of variables, uh, the cytokine variables, in a hypothetical tissue space. And as this was produced on the screen for the first time, a chill went through me. We were seeing uh, what I think is a true phenomena shown using chaos mathematics. Also, the fact that the blood vessels are knobbly is interesting because they are knobbly uh, in malignant transformation. Now, what might happen is that this can coexist in a state of dynamic equilibrium. But some of these cancer cells will now enter the circulation. And I believe that some of these cancer cells will form a latent focus of distant metastases. And I think the patient can coexist with these distant metastases for a long time. And I'm suggesting the surgeon comes along, wounds the patient, and whoops, it takes off again as part of the system. Now that, I think, is a scientific hypothesis. It is testable. And the logical therapeutic sequelae of that is to recognize that the perioperative or preoperative phase is key to our understanding of breast cancer, and we might introduce anti-angiogenic agents before biopsy or before surgery. Pfizer, the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world, takes this very seriously. They've developed a monoclonal antibody which specifically inhibits angiogenesis, and we are now in discussion about uh, developing a clinical trial to test this model. In conclusion, I have two quotations. John Carew Eccles, Nobel Laureate for Physiology, who did all the work on chemical transmissions, neurological chemical transmissions, was a great fan of Karl Popper, always acknowledged Karl Popper. And what he said, I love, I can now rejoice, even in the falsification of a cherished theory, because even this is scientific success. Nothing would please me more than to do the trial of anti-angiogenesis therapy, and be proven wrong, because I have no doubt that very process will give a greater insight into the nature of the disease that we're attacking. But the last word goes to Karl Popper from a quotation from the logic of scientific discovery. It is not truisms that science unveils, rather it is part of the greatness and the beauty of science that we can learn through our own critical investigations, that the world is utterly different from what we ever imagined. I will carry that message with me to the grave, and it has given me so much excitement and happiness, and I'm forever grateful 
Yes, I'm controversial, but I love controversy. And it's thanks to Popper that I have the courage to be controversial. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Mount. Of course, it was no criticism to say that you were controversial. I was hoping that you would be. And I hope that the audience tonight would have found in your lecture many topics, many points that they wish to contest. The more interesting, the more uh, challenging a lecture is, the more time should be spent on criticizing it. I'm very sorry that we have so little time this evening. Can I invite questions from the floor straight away? Please keep them as brief as you can. Thank you. Uh, professor, welcome to LSE. Uh, professor, welcome to LSE. Can you hear? It's your mouth uh, too close. It's uh, Professor, distorted. welcome you to LSE. Welcome you to London School of Economics. You're welcoming me to the School of Economics? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think, uh, do, do you think uh, modern medical, modern medicine... I can't hear. Oh, sorry. It's uh, just uh, the microphone is distorting your voice, and I can't hear what you're saying. Please. Professor, welcome you to LSE. Welcome you to London School of Economics. Uh, do you think the modern, modern medicine, modern medical knowledge, modern, today, medical... Yeah, um, I think the, the, the main message uh, I, I, I like to get across is the intellectual modesty of a true scientist. Um, I always accept that everything we think is the truth is just a temporary, uh, useful uh, working model of the truth. And as long as it produces successes, then we say, well, okay, it's, it's not the complete truth, it's nowhere near the complete truth, but it's useful. We're making progress. And we have seen phenomenal progress uh, in cancer over, uh, not in a hundred years, it's much less. I would say real progress uh, came with the discovery of the anti-cancer drugs and uh, in pathology and so on. Uh, so that real progress, I think, has only been about seven, um, from the mid-1950s to now, uh, is real, real progress, practical progress, people living better, living longer. And I just passionately believe if we don't lose, if we have the courage of our convictions to practice good clinical science and evidence-based medicine, there's no stopping us. It'll be mostly modest, incremental steps forward, very few major breakthroughs, but I think progress is inevitable, providing we retain the intellectual honesty of saying we could be wrong. Why do you think so many people turn to alternative medicine? Is it because of the terrific advertising and the media? Or is it because people are simply not satisfied or get satisfaction from standard medical practice? Hmm. It's a very good question, and it's another lecture, and I often am asked to talk and, and write about that. Uh, first of all, the, um, the social anthropology of alternative medicine is fascinating. It's a cultural thing, apart from anything else. There is no doubt that in the National Health Service, with our 10-minute consultations, Patients aren't satisfied. A lot of the time they go away dissatisfied. And it's lovely to go to someone who will sit you down and listen to you for three quarters of an hour. That makes you feel better. So I think the mere fact that there's time and space and the, the, the patient is the focus of the attention has a healing uh, component. Um, I, and I, I have no problem 
with that. My, my concern is the hype of alternative medicine, the proponents of alternative medicine being celebrities, very high profile people, are seducing patients away from proven remedies. And also I'm embattled in my attempt to prevent scarce NHS resources being siphoned off for the, in the name of political correctness for all sorts of alternative medicine. But it's a profoundly important question. Richard, please say who you are. Yes, sir. My name is Richard Stevens. Um, I'm sad that you didn't follow a Popperian tradition of making clear your definitions. I mean, you made no attempt to define what you mean by alternative medicine. And alternative medicine contains a, a great range of different strategies. And I think just to lump them all together and then to argue negatively, as you did by example, is not a very good philosophical strategy. But be that as it may, let me just take this issue of science-based medicine. To me, uh, science-based medicine rings very hollow. In fact, it turns my, I feel very negative when I hear that very term. I give you an example from prostate cancer. What it means in, in prostate cancer treatment, science-based medicine, is medicine that's based on hypotheses that are probably eight or ten years old. First of all, it takes, if you're talking about evidence-based medicine, the gold standard of the, of the controlled trial with a control group and experimental group. First of all, I think there are enormous ethical issues around recruiting for those trials because it means that some patients will be randomly allocated to the placebo group and will not receive treatment and in fact may have other forms of treatment controlled in order to control for random variables. So there's ethical issues involved. Secondly, these trials are enormously expensive. So the, the, they will be funded by drug companies. So it means effectively that the only hypotheses that will be tested effectively will be drugs. Absolutely. I mean, that's totally incorrect. That is so false. Let me start with prostate cancer. You chose prostate cancer. I happen to be uh, the uh, international chairman of the PSA screening trial whether or not PSA screening will stop men dying of, uh, of prostate cancer. A vitally important uh, trial which will revolutionize not only how we diagnose but even how we treat. It has nothing to do with the pharmaceutical industry. It's entirely funded by the MRC and uh, the uh, CRUK. So that is false. But can I, if I can continue, there are many supplements, for example, uh, vitamin D, uh, and there are some trials on this, it's admittedly true, but they're very far and few between. What I want to suggest to you is that there are more sophisticated forms. The kind of evidence-based medicine you talk about is actually based on agricultural statistics in the initial case, where you can easily manipulate, it's certainly true, you can, it, the, the idea of having a controlled trial, an experimental trial, where you can easily control the, the events in question, you're dealing with human beings. I suggest there are more sophisticated forms of analysis where you allow a number of different modes of often alternative and supplementary treatments, but you observe the effects. And given things like PSA, you can observe the effects very, very precisely. What do you think about that kind of strategy? Well, there were about four challenging questions in that. Start off, if I remember them all, I don't think that Paul, Karl Popper would bother too much about identifying terms. He felt that was... Uh, a waste of time to play semantics and he was constantly battling with Wittgenstein on that. Wittgenstein has nothing uh, useful or practical to teach us about practicing science. So A, I don't agree with that. B, uh, alternative medicine, um, if you want me to define alternative medicine, it's medicine that doesn't work. It's as simple as that. If it works, we would use it. There is no conspiracy uh, amongst the medical establishment to withhold treatments that work. So anything that doesn't work or doesn't, won't submit itself to critical scientific evaluation to me is alternative. The next thing you, you say, uh, this canard, uh, somehow uh, it's a conspiracy of the pharmaceutical industry uh, that we do clinical trials because that way they sell drugs. Well, if it is, then we are part of that conspiracy. Then I 
have to confess I'm a conspirator. It just so happens that 80% of the drugs that actually work are produced by the pharmaceutical industry. That's a sad inevitability, um, and it, it's tough. Now, finally, you mention, you remind me, uh, it's, you know, I'd really never thought of this before, the patients in clinical trials are human beings. Well, what a revelation. I've devoted my life to the welfare of women with breast cancer. Half of my work has been dealing with the ethical issues of randomizing patients and the importance that if you're going to randomize a patient to a clinical child, you've got to get informed consent and therefore you've got to be pretty good at communication skills. So we teach communication skills as a spin-off from the randomized control trial. And you will see this published again and again and again. It just so happens that it's in a woman's enlightened self-interest to join a trial because by and large they do much better by being in a trial irrespective of which arm of the trial you're randomised to. But if you don't like evidence-based medicine, fine. There's an alternative. It's what we doctors call ignorance-based medicine. Yes. Uh, one of the most important sequelae of a whole sequence of randomized trials on less and less surgery is that in place of the mutilating radical mastectomy when I qualified, uh, the majority of women we see today will have a small lump removed, one lymph node removed, and we've reached the point where we're giving intraoperative radiotherapy and might have the treatment completed on one day, a lumpectomy, a central node biopsy, an intraoperative radiotherapy, it is likely within a few years' time to be an off, what the Americans call an office procedure, walking a day case treatment, and that is within a few years' time. And that's merely because we've had a whole sequence of linked trials doing less and less and less. Um, I'll give you a couple of anecdotes of my own. Uh, a patient who had been completely well for seven or eight years after treating breast cancer had a compound fracture of the tib and fib. Within six months, she appeared with, riddled with metastasis. Uh, a close friend of mine um, was being investigated for urinary tract infection. By chance, uh, they found uh, a tumor of the kidney. Uh, completely asymptomatic, he had that removed and within six months riddled. Um, the, the trauma, that, the point you're making is could it be any kind of trauma? One of the studies I'm conducting at the moment, we, we have the database of the attack trial, 9,000 patients, beautifully documented, 10-year follow-up. I'm now working with Professor Kuzik at uh, um, Bart's uh, School of uh, Preventive Medicine and Epidemiology. We are now looking at all the patients who had incidental surgery, fractures, cholecystectomy, whatever, and then seeing if that can predict a second peak in relapse. So I think you picked up very nicely on a point I made. It's not just cancer surgery, it's trauma. The act of trauma the molecular cascade generated by trauma for healing, the normal healing process, may be the very last thing you want if you've got a dormant cancer. Yes, there's another question. 
question over there. Just say who you are. Carl Cafe. Um, two quick questions. One, there's been some anxiety around the breast compression as counting as wounding if there's an incipient tumour that that compression I don't know what your opinion is on that uh, and the second question is if wounding takes place for what turns out to be a benign um, not a cancer basically a benign situation not even a lump just the microparticles does the angiogenesis um, angiogenesis by itself is critical for survival. I mean, if you don't have angiogenesis after uh, trauma, you can't live. So, by and large, it's a benevolent response. Uh, so, if you have a, a biopsy of a benign lump, you may have had a period of anxiety, but I can't believe it does any lasting surgery, harm. Surgery after, after surgery. biopsy and then yeah, if it's benign, then I can't believe any harm has been done. Compression uh, following mammography is a concern. It's quite an intensive uh, pressure. Um, there is no good evidence available that that in itself um, uh, provides sufficient damage to kickstart uh, something that was latent. But it is a legitimate concern which has been investigated. One more question. Alex Wu from the philosophy department here. What do you think explains that for such a long period of time there was a procedure for which in the end, and a, and a theory for which in the end there was very little evidence? So a theory from the late 19th century until the period in which you trained. Um, what changed in the way medicine was conducted or this aspect of medicine? Which institutions changed, do you think, to uh, generate that change yeah. approach? Um, until I don't think medicine was a science um, I think medicine is in the beginning of a scientific era what has happened is that uh, physiology uh, molecular biology these are scientific subjects the spectacular discovery of the double helix and the consequences of those discoveries were brilliant science the, uh, the whole of modern physiology was brilliant science but translating these brilliant scientific discoveries from the laboratory, the physiologist the uh, cellular biologist to therapy has only recently become a science now people say well you know, what about penicillin you didn't need a clinical trial for penicillin it's true if you've got treatments if you've got disease with a very predictable natural history and you have a treatment which is spectacular you don't need clinical trials and I've been told so often that we didn't need a clinical trial for penicillin that I believed it then I went back and I read all the papers and it was appalling what a mess it took I can't it, countless people died unnecessarily because of the trial and error the botched way that penicillin was introduced they hadn't a clue of the mode of delivery the dosimetry the frequency if they'd done just a few sequential clinical trials we would have, could have got there in a year because the uh, natural history of the disease was very predictable and the treatment was spectacular but we, we got there in the end muddled through in spite of the method used not because of the method used so I think really we're witnessing um, over the last 30 or 40 years the, the birth of evidence-based medicine to me is the beginning of medicine becoming a science riding on the back of the brilliant scientists uh, of the uh, physiologists and the cell and molecular biologists. I'm going to have, thank you very much. I'm going to have to draw the proceedings to a close. But I say we really should finish now. Everybody here is invited to the reception in the senior common room, which is on the one, two, three, four, fifth floor. John, yes, the fifth floor of the old building. Uh, and today we'll have an opportunity, I hope, to question Professor Bow a bit further and to interrogate him and.
to raise a more philosophical point with him, which I certainly would like. Do I get a drink? Uh, <laughs> it's not my responsibility. I haven't been informed about this, but I hope to. Could I just, before you let me just say one thing? Despite what Professor Baum has just said about uh, medicine just beginning to be a science, it is, I think we can say, certainly the first lecture which we've had, which has been given by natural scientists, obviously, uh, by philosophers, philosophers interested in science, politicians, politicians interested in science. So I'm, I'm very happy that uh, we should have this occasion have had somebody talking to us about real science. We are, of course, very interested in continuing this series and to have many more, many more lectures to be sourced. And the, the, the committee that thinks about this and makes the invitation would indeed be very happy to hear further suggestions uh, of possible speakers, not only in science, not only in politics, or in philosophy even, but in any subject which uh, Karl Popper touched, which means almost everything apart from food and drink and cricket. Almost every subject uh, would be a possible source. So if you have any ideas, could you please either talk to Professor John Morrill here at the reception or to communicate with them later? Uh, because we would be very happy to receive lots of suggestions so that we have this proliferation of hypotheses and we can eliminate most of your suggestions and come up with something really good. Thank you very much.